<laughs> okay, welcome back to Med Conversations. This is the new and improved COVID version of Med Conversations. Improved that, well, I mean, it was a low bar to start with, but we're, this is all being done <laughs> through the magic of the internet. Uh, this is Rahul here, and I have with me today Scott and Beck. Do you want to say hi, guys? Hi, everyone. Um, so glad that you could all clear your busy schedules to be with us today. Yeah, straight from the slum, grubby slums of Melbourne. Here we are. Yeah, yeah. It's a dirty, dirty place right now. <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about a podcast that no one's requested, and I think these two aren't even that happy to be doing. <laughs> um, it's going to be on obstructive sleep apnea or sleep apnea in general. So just to give you a rundown of the contents, we're going to have an introduction, some definitions that you need to be aware of, risk factors related to sleep apnea, something about the clinical features, and then we're going to talk about the investigations, diagnosis, how you actually reach the diagnosis of it, and then lastly, of course, how you manage it and the associated conditions you should be thinking about. So let's get started. Uh, good. Tell us about Frank, Brad, Peter. Fra- yeah. Uh, yeah. Chad? Do you want to come Chad? <laughs> Chad? Uh, so the case part one. Chad, Frank, Peter, Brad swa- suavely carves his way into your office. As the Air Force's top gun, he knows his worth and he's willing to show it. Admittedly, Frank Chad has put on a few kilos lately with coronavirus and the lack of wartime activity, but he still gives you a nod and a wink as though he just spiked a volleyball set up by his good friend Goose. He tells you he's been nodding off a bit too easily since the few kilos have packed on and was wondering about taking up crystal meth to improve his wakefulness. Is this the reason he made the appointment with you? (laughs) That was he just wanted to ask you professionally. (laughs) Wakefulness or weightfulness? Because I think crystal meth would also help with weightfulness. It's a a wonder drug. Um, All right, I think we should move on to the... (laughs) You said you were going to introduce us. Yeah. um, So sleep apnea. Tell me, what does that mean to you, Beck, as like a general term when you hear that? Um. That to me means sleep, not breathing. Yeah. Um, so, so sleep-related breathing disorders. That's right. It's a family of sleep-related breathing disorders. And I think the thing to know is mainly the, there's a central sleep apnea and then there's obstructive sleep apnea, which is sometimes referred to as obstructive sleep apnea hypopnea syndrome or OSAS. But in Australia, generally OSA. Now, we aren't going to talk too much about central sleep apnea here. But both of them result in impaired ventilation, so impaired breathing during sleep, which disrupts your sleep. And OSA, obstructive sleep apnea, is by far the more common one, and what you're going to see mostly. Central sleep apnea is much rarer, and sometimes can be overlapped with OSA, but is essentially associated with some part of your brain forgetting to tell you to breathe, hence the central part of it. So it's sometimes seen in people who have strokes, people who are on certain medications like narcotics, and people who have heart failure. But this podcast can be predominantly about obstructive sleep apnea. So, Scott, can you tell us about the sort of things that you think about when you're making a, the diagnosis of OSA or what the components are? Yeah, well, the really obvious one that everyone thinks about is snoring, gasping, or breathing, or pauses during sleep, which obviously have to sometimes come from a partner, but might come from the patient. And daytime sleepiness and fatigue is a really key um, symptom. What, particularly when you've ruled out other causes like depression or just not sleeping enough. Yeah, that's right. And then, so that's all the symptoms family of things. And then there's another family, which is the sleep study, which is, as you're going to learn, the most vital part of a OSA assessment. And what's, what are the main components in that, Beck? Yeah, so the main thing, and I think especially for medical students and, oh, well, everyone to kind of focus on here is 
is the thing called the AHI, which is our favourite three-letter acronym for OSA, Apnea Hypopnea Index. And that's, that's a measure of how many times per hour of sleep there's an episode lasting over 10 seconds of either a drop in, um, well, an episode of decreased breathing that's associated with either a drop in oxygen saturation or arousal, arousal as in uh, cortical arousal on an EEG. And yeah, so you, you wake up or your oxygen levels drop. Um, and, that, and how many times that's happening per hour is really one of the key metrics to tell you whether or not you have sleep apnea. Okay. Mm, so how many times is that? I always forget. So it depends on whether you have symptoms or not, those symptoms that Scott was talking about before. So if you have more than five per hour with symptoms, uh, then you get classified as having OSA. And if you have more than 15 without symptoms, then that's also classified as OSA. Uh, and we'll dive a bit more into the intricacies of that later. But yeah, those are the rough numbers to remember. Good, thanks. Uh, so let's talk a bit about the pathophysiology. It's pretty tricky. It's pretty tricky. And I'm going to go on a huge rant here and then you guys can stop me. So uh, essentially it's a complicated mix of factors. But you've got someone who's got an airway that you know air is passing in and out of when they breathe, uh, the upper airway, so the throat, the pharynx. And in, when you inspire air, you get this thing called the Bernoulli effect, which is whenever something is passing through a tube or a lumen, um, the velocity of that air or fluid passing through there exerts an indrawing force on the lumen. So it pulls everything in. So, for example, when you're breathing in, it causes indrawing of the pharynx in this situation, and your pharynx, your throat doesn't have any bones to keep it open. And so things will just collapse. Now, you might ask, why doesn't this just happen in everybody? Well, most people have enough neural outflow when they're asleep to prevent the collapse of their airway. So actually their brain or you know, the nerves are doing a reasonable job of maintaining muscle tone there to prevent collapse. But if something gets out of balance, like with most medical conditions, then this sort of protective pathway can fall down. So the things that can get out of balance is either you can get an increased pressure from the outside on the airway, which means that even the neural outflow isn't enough to protect it, or your neural outflow can die out. So the amount of neural tone you're getting to keep those muscles open is dying off. Um, and we'll talk about some of the things that can cause that. In fact, we'll talk about them right now. So <laughs> what are some of the things, <laughs> Beck, that can mean that the pressure or, or that you're more likely to collapse from a structural point of view as opposed to from a the neurological point of view? Yeah, so this is something I see a lot of in the bariatric obesity clinic because people with a large amount of adiposity overlying their airway, and these are the people who have visibly a thickened neck, tend to have that external pressure exerted on the airway lumen. So large soft tissue, adiposity, but then also um, structural abnormalities, anatomical changes um, can, can lead to that as well. Yeah, that's right. And so I think that's important. We'll talk more about this later. But if you have an abnormal jaw or an abnormal throat for whatever reason, commonly seen in people who have various chromosomal you know, genetic abnormalities, um, then you, that can also predispose you to OSA without looking like the typical OSA patient that we'll talk about later. Um, and I think the interesting thing is that, as a lot of you may or may not know, that during REM sleep, essentially your body paralyzes all of your muscles. Um, it's not 100% clear exactly what happens during REM sleep, but all of your muscles become paralyzed. And given that, this is obviously the most risky part of sleep for you to have an obstructing event because part of the muscles that are paralyzed are also the ones in the back of your throat. Uh, and one of the other sort of last components to this complex pathophysiology is CO2 sensitivity. 
So CO2 is what causes ventilatory drive in most people. So we, still, we feel the urge to breathe because the carbon dioxide levels in our blood go up. Uh, and some people, as with all things in life, some people are more sensitive to CO2 and some people are less sensitive to CO2. And if you're less sensitive to CO2, it means it takes more of the uh, not breathing to actually wake up and return tone to that airway and open that airway up. So those people will have longer events and won't wake as soon when they, when they do fall into a hypopnea or an apnea. Okay, Scott, do you want to just tell us a bit about the epidemiology? Yeah, so as we, we talked about some of the um, you know, patients you might spot, um, but it's being more common in males and in overweight people. But the prevalence uh, varies with age, and it's about uh, 2 to 15% in middle-aged adults and over 20% in the elderly. And then there's kind of this bimodal distribution where you also have a peak in young children, 3 to 8 years old, and that's for different causes, but it's often due to lymphoid hypertrophy. Mm, okay, great. So just to kind of summarise that, so um, in terms of the pathophysiology, it sounds like there's there's sort of three main things to think about. One is the patient's weight and the amount of weight that's pushed on their airway. One's their airway size. Another is the, the muscle tone of the upper airway and that all of those things uh, work together to, to cause OSA, but then patients with a reduced sensitivity to carbon dioxide can also um, sleep through and, and not have sufficient arousal to uh, to maintain that muscle tone needed to keep the airways patient. And that most of the patients we see with this are going to be elderly. Yep, that's spot on. And one thing we actually didn't mention there is I, I did mention the neurological outflow to keep the um, airway open. And it's probably the I'm biggest thing. Yeah, probably <laughs> the biggest thing that affects that in terms of pathophysiology is people who are on drugs um, that impair their neural outflow. So that would be like benzodiazepines and, and other sedatives, so sleeping pills, and also people who have drunk alcohol because alcohol also sort of makes you a bit sloppy with your muscle tone. So, yeah, CNS depressants. And various other really. things. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the case part two. You ponder on your own recent consideration of crystal meth due to COVID-induced boredom, but think maybe you should take a history from Frank Chad first. Frank tells you he has no past history aside from the recent weight gain, and importantly, he's had no bleeding, he's not anemic, no thyroid issues in the past, and his mood has been pretty reasonable. Now, despite him being the clear alpha male in the room, he admits that his wife has found him a little bit less maverick and a little bit more average due to his snoring. His examination reveals a thick neck, central obesity, a blood pressure of 150 on 70 millimetres of mercury, so it's elevated, and his BMI is also elevated at 33. You also notice he has some pretty badass eagle tattoos, and you make a mental note of that for later. Okay, risk factors. Talk us through some risk factors, Beck. I don't know. Surely it's Scott's go here. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm deliberately <laughs> shutting him out. Look, I'm voting for more Beck time, personally. <laughs> <laughs> Scott's on mute. He's just walked out. Classic Zoom call behaviour. Yeah. No, you go. No, wait. <laughs> All right, I'll get started. So the major risk factors are obesity and being male. So about half the cases of OSA are actually attributable to obesity. And it's really interesting because weight gain is actually uh, directly correlated with AHI. So a 10% increase in weight gain is associated with a 30% increase in AHI, which again is the apnea hypopnea index. And I mentioned the other major risk factor is being male, and that's actually associated with two to four times higher risk in men compared with women. 
Yeah, so those are sort of like the traditional risk factors. Then we talked about that separate group of people who aren't necessarily obese, not necessarily males. Uh, and maybe, Scott, tell us what, what does that sort of person look like or what about that collection of people? What might you be looking for? So that's a bit more of a varied group. You might have people who um, have retrognathia, so a backwards jaw, non-protruding, or micrognathia with a really small jaw, so which reduces the size of the lumen. They might have a family history of obstructive sleep apnea, or in kids, that group we talked about, you might have um, adenotonsillar hypertrophy, or any other syndromes that reduce airway patency, like Downs or um, other... Well, you know, yes. other... I was trailing off. Probably, I guess, like even things like motor neuron diseases, anything where you're going to affect your muscle kind of tone. Yeah, that's fair. I think the thing in Downs is that they have a large protruding tongue, and so that is what gets in the way. And so, any there are you know um, a bunch of syndromes that are associated with facial abnormalities, craniofacial abnormalities. So, velocardiofacial syndrome, I think, was one, and you know that because it has Mm. heart components. But anyway, yeah, those sorts of things. Acromegaly. with associated um, macroglossia. True, yeah. I guess um, that's interesting. You know, alcohol also causes a large tongue, doesn't it? Mm. Alcohol. I wonder if that's part of the way that alcohol causes OSA. Anyway, um, yeah. So I think with those ones, it's usually going to be pretty obvious most of the time that someone has some craniofacial abnormality and that's why. I guess what might not be obvious is you're putting together the fact that they have OSA. Um, so just, yeah, that's the part to think about. So from a clinical features point of view, I really want to emphasize that um, in anyone who you think about OSA or in anyone who has some of these other conditions, you've got to think about the company that OSA keeps. So what am I talking about? If someone comes in with heart failure and atrial fibrillation and they're obese, you should really be thinking about does this person have OSA? And alternatively, if someone has OSA, you've recently made the diagnosis, you should be thinking about things like high blood pressure, diabetes, atrial fibrillation, screening for them and making sure you check for them because it's all it falls into that sort of family of metabolic syndrome, heart failure, western dieting type diseases. Yeah. So when you're taking a history, uh, Beck, you're probably next. You can go next, Beck. Um, what sort of things are you taking from the history? Yeah, so I think um, this is where it's really useful to have the patient's partner in the room when you're asking the history because uh, I, I suppose a key part of the history is what their sleep behaviours are like. And you ask them and then they always crack a joke and they go, oh, I wouldn't know, I'm not awake. Um, but then <laughs> you, so, so, uh, and then you ask their wife and their wife spends half the night either just punching them in, in her sleep because she's getting woken up all the time by their noisy snoring or gasping. Or actually more often their partner sleeps in a different room or they've had relationship breakdowns because of this. It's actually something that really can't be underestimated, the strain that it puts on a relationship. So I take that history of whether the patient is snoring, is gasping, is snorting during the night. But I think it's also important to know that some patients don't snore. They can have an airway collapse without the associated vibration that is what causes the noise. Um, and, And during sleep, there's often recurrent awakening so they're they're often but actually not always aware that they have a very disturbed sleep even though it's a it's a respiratory problem I think it's important particularly for students to understand that dyspnea or shortness of breath is usually not a feature Um, patients who have dyspnea overnight we have to think more about something like paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea which is a symptom of heart failure asthma or or gastroesophageal reflux 
So that's the, that's the sleep history branch of history taking in obstructive sleep apnea. But I think a lot of the other parts of the history relate to the time when the patient is not asleep. For sure. Do and you that's want to keep probably rambling when on here. Or? <laughs> uh, yeah, I can do a bit of rambling myself, a little hool style rambling. Um, yeah, that's probably the start part. You know, when they're during the day, is probably what they're going to come to you with, unless they have a partner who's literally forced them to go see a doctor because they're snoring. And so that stuff that they're going to come to you with is saying that I'm really sleepy. I fall asleep while I'm doing things. So you know, some of them will just fall asleep while they're sitting upright in a meeting, um, like me, um, kind of falling asleep in this podcast. Uh, they might just they might have the neuropsychiatric component, so they might say that they have really poor memory, very irritable, maybe even depressed, and you know sleep is obviously um, essential for your mental health. And to sort of quantify this a little bit, or to understand this, if someone comes to you with symptoms, there are like a bunch of questionnaires available, including one from the home of COVID, Melbourne, uh, the Epworth Sleepiness Scale. Um, and the stop bang questionnaire. Um, Scott, do you want to tell us a bit about what's in the stop bang questionnaire? Which one? This one might be familiar with. People might be yep, familiar. So this is one of those great acronyms that uh, sometimes the the letter is the second word, but um, <laughs> <laughs> you can always look it up. Lots of apps will have it on it. You don't need to remember it off the top of your head. But if you're worried about sleep apnea, S is for stop bang. So S is for snore. Um, do people snore? T is for tired. O is for have they been observed to stop breathing by their partner? Um, H is for high blood pressure. Um, it's not an H, it's actually a P. <laughs> oh, P. <laughs> so I mean, some people spell stop. Hop, hop, stop. Stop. You can refer back to our Hep C podcast. Um, <laughs> more information on variations of how to pronounce hop. Um, so <laughs> bang, B is for BMI over 35. A, age is over 50. N is for neck circumference over a certain measurement. And G is for... 40 centimetres, thanks, Beck. And G's for gender, male. There's That's no right. better examination to do than um, putting a piece <laughs> of string around a patient's neck. <laughs> and you I thought make you were sure about you get... to talk about assessing gender by an examination. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can use the same bit of string. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no. I mean, you really don't want to make sure you don't underestimate that neck, uh, overestimate that neck circumference. So make sure you go tight with the tape measure from behind, usually. <laughs> um, and then I think the other, the other feature of daytime somnolence or the symptom component of it in the history is it's, has someone had car accidents unusually or has had someone, someone had workplace accidents if they work in a workplace where it would be likely that falling asleep would lead to an accident? And that's really important both for your management as well because you've got to think about are they safe to go back to doing those things? Um, yeah. And then, Becky, so you think... were telling us all about polyuria. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I see a lot of patients with OSA in the diabetes clinic and they tell me that they become polyuric when they're, you know, they, they go to bed and they, they have to get up and urinate several times in those first few hours of sleep. And I invariably send them off to increase their insulin or check their blood glucose more often, thinking that it's hyperglycemia causing their polyuria. But OSA itself can cause polyuria and and sometimes this can be a useful clinical clue that can lead to the diagnosis. And the way that that works is because the intrathoracic pressure is increased, that can cause an increased release of the antidiuretic hormone and BNP. And that doesn't make any sense, does it, that antidiuretic hormone would cause polyuria? It would be suppression of ADH, I suppose. The suppression of ADH. 
Um, but BNP would cause polyuria as well. So that, I think that would probably come from left ventricular stretch due to changes in intrathoracic pressure. Um, so that's interesting. I actually hadn't heard that one before Beck had put it forth. I'm losing confidence definitely in the, in the veracity of said claim, but I'm sure it's all true. Um, and then lastly is the occupational history, which I think you need to really drill down on here. Uh, do they work in a critical job like Frank Chad? Do they, um, you know, are they Air Force pilots or pilots in general? Do they work with heavy machinery? Because um, those things will obviously be critical in terms of their fatigue. Okay. So physical exam, Scotty. You know, you're starting with you start with the the string around their neck, and yep. where do you move to from there? <laughs> move into a get, rear naked chokehold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so <laughs> we've already talked about a few of these things. So firstly, the company it keeps um, association. So you know, even from your obs, you're looking for high blood pressure, looking for an irregular heartbeat from their pulse and other. You know, if they look obviously um, obese or overweight. Um, and then moving on to things like large neck circumference or um, uh, goiter, central obesity. Um, you should look at their oropharynx for crowding and kind of the size of the structures. See, you can even do maybe a melon patty score if you're feeling, uh, got a bit of an anesthetic background, which you can look up. But it's a simple test where basically you get someone to open their mouth really wide and see how much of their uvula in, you know, the soft palate you can see, um, which also is associated with um, OSA. Um, so next, uh, so we talked a bit about, you know, um, uh, cardiac exam and look for signs of heart failure. Um, and then you can progress onto some of, you know, bedside tests that Beck loves like blood sugar level. Um, you could even do a full ward test, you know, look for sugar, that diabetes. Mm -hmm. And like, I think that, uh, an ECG is part of every, uh, bedside exam. So you should look for atrial fibrillation because that is associated with obstructive sleep apnea. And obviously checking a blood pressure. Hypertension is definitely associated with um, OSA. So make sure you check yeah. some of those things as part of your cardiac exam. Absolutely. Okay, so case part three. You're still dazzled by the eagle tattoos uh, you've just seen on Frank Chad's beautiful body. And whilst you sit there in a daze, a lightning bolt sent by Sir William Osler himself strikes your medical brain. You tell Frank you may have the silver bullet to his arousal-related issues, both intimate and sleep-related, and you refer him for a formal sleep study, also known as a polysomnogram in the lab. You also add a reminder on your phone to call the local tattooist and read through some of the ornithology books that adorn your shelves about the coolest species of eagles you could get tattooed to your eyeballs. Okay. Eyeballs. <laughs> Escalated quickly. <laughs> yeah. You up on the crystal meth. You go for the eyeball tattoo. Um, so this is part of the, the investigations and, and the gold standard investigation is what's called a PSG or a polysomnogram. Um, but there is also sort of a easier to do but less reliable test called a home sleep study. Um, so it's less sensitive. I, it picks up less people who likely have the disease. So what sort of information, Beck, do you actually get from a polysomnogram? What sort of recorders and monitors do you have on? Yeah, so... So just to kind of set the scene a bit, at the at the hospital where I did my internship, um, the the sleep lab was on the fifth floor in a really convenient passageway between two of the wards I was covering, and I used to run run through the ward noisily while people would be trying to sleep, having their sleep studies done. And what I didn't realise was that not only were they people who already had problems sleeping who were trying to sleep in a laboratory with a woman running past every few hours but also that they had various kinds of tubes and, um, and wires and things connected to them. So they're lying in bed. They've got a belt around the chest. 
they've got a essentially a like a swimming cap kind of thing on with a whole lot of little um, knobs in it and wires coming out of it, and that's an EEG. So that's a measure of that's an electroencephalogram, so a measure of the brain activity, uh, electrical activity. They've got a measure of their oxygen saturations with a SATs probe on their finger. They have EMGs, so electromyograms, that are measuring how much their muscles are moving. So that, that's helpful in uh, knowing when they're aroused, when they're moving around, and when they're, whether they've got restless legs. They've got an electrooculogram that's measuring how much their eyes are moving. I'm not actually sure what that physically uh, Rem- looks like. Oh, yeah, I think it's patches like over their eyes or next to their eyes. Right. So it's, lo- it's looking at the eye movement muscles, so all your extra orbital mm. muscles, and it tells you whether they're in REM or non-REM sleep because your eye movement, obviously REM sleep stands for rapid eye movement sleep, um, and that mm. moves around a lot, so they can tell when they're in that. And if you pay extra and have really high-level high um, health insurance, when they put their electrooculogram on, they can also put an eagle tattoo on your eye <laughs> sleep setting. Um, so you've also got an ECG, so uh, you all know what that is. So you've got the dots on the chest and there's nasal pressure transducers. So they're lying there literally looking like they're in some kind of a torture chamber, uh, but it gives us a wealth of very useful information and a many, many page long report at the end of their sleep. And remarkably, I've always been amazed by this, but remarkably patients do actually manage to sleep under these conditions. Yeah. So yeah. what are we actually measuring? Yeah, so I mean, the thing about a sleep study, when you get when you look at the sleep study, you get this ludicrous amount of data because of all these sensors. And look, sleep physicians will be able to look at all this. And it, a lot of it is used to diagnose really complex sleep conditions like narcolepsy and, and central sleep apnea and limb movement disorders. But for this, in this situation, the main things we care about are the breathing. So that's going to be, you're going to get information about that by the airflow going through their nose, those nasal pressure transducers, and their chest movement. That'll tell you about inspiratory effort. Um, oxygenation, which is obviously just a SATS probe. It's pretty easy. Their body movement, which is from the EMGs, those electromyograms, they're telling about their leg muscles, their chin muscles, and then cardiac rhythm, your ECG. Those are your key obstructive sleep apnea things you're going to think about. And then there's all the extras that realistically, like unless you're a sleep physician, you're going to think about. So that's the, you know, understanding the EEG, understanding the limb movements, understanding the intensity of their snoring because they have microphones. So interpretation, as we talked about, it's complex. There's all this extra information. But the most important index we look at as kind of low-level doctors trying to understand is this apnea, hypopnea. Hey, speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so unless you're kind of Beck or uh, Raul level, if you're like, if you're a Scott-level doctor, then you're just looking at this <laughs> apnea, hypopnea index, AHI, which is counting how many 10-second long cessation of breathing or reduction in airflow with either desaturation or arousal how many of these 10 second episodes on uh, how many of these 10 second episodes per hour of sleep and we'll talk a bit later about what the criteria are for mild moderate or severe um, and then there's some other um, indexes you can look at like the respiratory disturbance index um, and Raul, what's that yeah so that's basically everything Scott said in the AHI but it expands the criteria because sometimes people have these you know, they, they stop breathing a little bit, but they don't quite arouse and they don't quite meet the criteria for AHI. So it's really just expanding the net. And it's, it, those things are called respiratory effort-related arousals. They love acronyms, these sleep doctors. Um, that's why they're so boring and sleeping all the time. Um, but yeah, so, <laughs> 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 so you get your AHI plus your respiratory effort-related events, your RERAS, and that gives you your respiratory disturbance index. So just think of it as your AHI plus a little bit. 
And then lastly, your key feature is the plain old oxygen saturation, everyone's friends. So things that they look at are the mean oxygen saturation during sleep, the lowest oxygenation saturation during sleep, and the time spent at levels below normal. So just some things you'll see on the report. So then we come to diagnosis. Like, so you've got all this information, you've got all this stuff that's been fed to you through this ridiculously complicated report. How do you actually make the diagnosis? Beck. Yeah, okay. So the, the way you interpret the information depends on whether you've done a home sleep study or a full polysomnog polysomnogram. So if it's a full polysomnogram, then an AHI of five per hour plus symptoms or comorbid conditions. So AHI, those 10-second blocks of, um, of reduced SATs or arousals associated with uh, apneas or hypopneas, and symptoms being the ones that we spoke about earlier, so sleepiness, waking up in the night, gasping, snoring, and then comorbid conditions could be a lot of different metabolic conditions, so hypertension, type 2 diabetes, heart failure, atrial fibrillation, stroke, coronary artery disease. So it's fairly broad. So that's so if there's symptoms or comorbid conditions, you only need an AHI of five. But in the absence of symptoms or comorbid conditions, then the AHI needs to be 15. The other measure you can use is the is the RDI. So what's that? What's the RDI again? So that was the Genuine one that includes <laughs> the RDI was the one that includes all those RERAs, those ones that don't quite qualify for the apnea hypopnea thing. And so basically, you're going to detect more people because they use the same cutoffs, five with symptoms or fifteen without symptoms, but you're mm -hmm. including more events that wouldn't have made it through to the keeper earlier. And so you know, it's a bit of a question of like, you know, which one do you use? It depends on how suspicious you are and how much you want to make the diagnosis. Really, uh, and it probably depends on what centre you're at. So that's on the formal sleep studies where you got all the things hooked up. You're on the fifth floor. You got some endocrinologist in high heels storming through there in the middle of the night. Um, but uh, on the home sleep tests, this you get a lot less information. You basically just get SATs and like your your respiratory effort through a nasal monitor. So you don't get the arousals. You don't know what their brain's doing. There's no EEG, and so they use. And get ready for it. There's another acronym, the Respiratory Event Index. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it's a similar sort of thing. And if it's above 15 per hour, then you probably have OSA as well and you can make the diagnosis. But if you get a home sleep test that's negative and this guy's neck is you know, thicker than a tree trunk and he's snoring every night and his wife hates him or whatever, then you, know, you should be suspicious <laughs> and you can, you can do a full sleep study. Mm. COVID probably that. complicates this a little bit. So... Um... Very much so, We're yeah. probably doing a few more of those home sleep studies than we used to. Mm. So then you want to classify severity. And I'm going to keep this fairly simple, but basically you're, it's all on that AHI slash RDI. So between 5 and 14 events per hour, that's mild. And those people, they're going to be a little bit symptomatic maybe. Moderate is 15 to 30 events per hour. And that's quite a lot. You know, you're getting 15 to 30 times you're not breathing per hour. Uh, and these people are generally symptomatic. Might need there might be people who like a nap. I like a nap. Hmm. Anyway, they avoid driving long distances, and they might have systemic hypertension as well, uh, unexplained. And then there's your severe, so anything above thirty. And these guys are really sleepy. They might have had a car accident before. They might fall asleep sitting in your consult room whilst they're talking to you, particularly if you're Scott. Um, so that's more than thirty. And so it's easy to think. It's above five is the diagnosis with symptoms, and then five and 14, then 15 to 30, then above 30. It goes up in 15. Mm. Like and that is game. insane. Every two minutes, having 
that long that you're not breathing properly. Yeah, it's crazy. No wonder they Wild. sleep like shit. So back to our case. Frank the man returns from his uh, polysomnogram feeling worse than the time his jet got abducted by a UFO and he got probed for hours. He tells you that UFOs are real, man. You should really re-examine the evidence. Check out Joe Rogan, dude. There's, there's a lot of truth out there and people aren't talking about it. You ignore his blathering and dart your eyes down to his crisply printed polysomnogram report. It states, the total recording time was 424 minutes. This is the sleep physician's voice. The total sleep time was 373 minutes. There were a total of 434 apneas and hypopneas for an apnea-hypopnea index of 69.8 per hour of sleep. So the AHI was 69.8. And gradually and more low- British as it goes. <laughs> <laughs> the lowest, the lowest <laughs> oxygen. It's an audible report as well. <laughs> or is it written phonetically? Sorry, sorry. <laughs> the lowest oxygen saturation was 57%. <laughs> the total duration of oxygen less than 90% was 223.1 minutes. Conclusion, severe sleep apnea. Recommend sleep titration with CPAP. Now, for the record, a normal sleep um, sleep study report is like two pages long. It's insane of writing. At least. So, yeah. This is like a very abbreviated version and very British version. So I think the important numbers there, Scott, were? So the, um, looking at there's an adequate total sleep time, I guess, the study yeah. worked. But then looking at the total number of apneas and hypopneas and, and that AHI, that apnea hypopnea index per hour. So 69.8, which was above the 30, which is quite severe. So 30 Very severe. high. And then his oxygen saturation dropped down 57% at one point in time. Holy mm. moly. Okay, so treatment of OSA. I think we're thinking of a chronic disease here, and it always needs multidisciplinary management. Um, and I think the main principle of treatment of sleep apnea is that everyone should be offered what's called CPAP, or positive airway pressure as initial therapy, in addition to changing any minor behavioural things. But CPAP is your go-to once you have the diagnosis. If the patient don't want no CPAP, then you can use oral appliances, which we'll talk about later as alternate therapy, but really CPAP, CPAP, CPAP. Mm. So behavioural modification, Beck, this seems to be a lot of what you do in your job. Tell us about the things you can do for OSA. Yeah, so I think the, there are three main thing, main behaviours you can change. The first is um, behaviours and lifestyle changes that can lead to weight loss. The second is avoidance of contributory medications like alcohol and benzodiazepines, anything that causes CNS depression. And the third is changing sleep position. Um, so, so sleeping on the side can be better than lying on the back. In terms of the weight loss, um, just for a bit of a real-life context for this, in the, in the obesity clinic at my hospital, we have a lot of patients who do have sleep apnea and, and they're exhausted if they have untreated sleep apnea. So they don't do exercise because they can't. They get home from work and they've slept half the day at work as well. They get home from work and they just fall asleep on the couch. Um, so it's a bit of a vicious cycle like so many other things in medicine. Uh, but it's, it, it means that, it, again, the multidisciplinary team is important and exercise physiologists can play a role, but mostly it ends up being dietary and even pharmacological to help people lose some weight, which can reduce that pressure that's placed on their upper airways. Totally. And it'll also help with all the other comorbid conditions they have. I remember, you're probably a bit like me at home, I imagine. I imagine that you're at me like, (laughs) it's just a bunch of me's listening to this podcast. But I was just thinking about this and I was like, I'm sleepy all day and I often like naps. Maybe I have sleep apnea. Anyway. Um, How many hours of sleep do you get a night, though? You're also a cardiology reg. What, like six, five, four? Why am I so tired? 
Yeah, actually, <laughs> unsolvable mystery. This is, this, is a good t- this is a good time to put this in. Um, so the, what's the most common cause for excessive daytime sleepiness? Uh, a lack of nighttime sleepiness. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's a, this is this is a this is a fact written in the medical journal. So OSA is the most common <laughs> medical cause of excessive daytime sleepiness. But um, but yeah, it's not rocket science. Um, <laughs> yeah, when you're taking calls all night, sleep. surprisingly you don't sleep. Yeah, um, so <laughs> weird. Positive airway pressure therapy is what we were talking about before. So CPAP or it's positive airway pressure. I'm just going to keep it simple. You're basically using a machine to blow air into someone's throat so that it doesn't close, so that the intraluminal pressure, the lumen being the inside of the throat, remains higher than the extraluminal pressure and it doesn't collapse. And the main thing to know here is, well, what does, um, what does CPAP actually help with? Well, there's high-quality evidence that it reduces your AHI, it decreases your symptoms of daytime sleepiness, it improves your blood pressure if it's high, and it lowers your risk of motor vehicle crashes and accidents. But it does not have a proven effect on mortality, and this is from meta-analysis level evidence, and it does not have any proven effect on cardiovascular events. That's pretty interesting. Um, That's it does so help. interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, that almost sounded sarcastic, I think, but she's been... No, no. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely. <laughs> she, she looks... For those at home, I can see her on through Zoom. She looks gobsmacked. She's, she's taking a lot of time yeah. to process what she's just learned. Um, so but it does, it really does help with AF, though, just not yes. ischemic cardiovascular events. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Like and, MI you and know, stroke. The other stuff that it doesn't help with, it doesn't help with your hemoglobin A1C, doesn't help with your neurocognitive functional mood. This is from studies. Now, i got to say, anecdotally, I have patients come back and say they're feeling a lot better. Whether that's just a marker of them taking their whole life, you know, and all their other stuff a bit more seriously and getting on top of that, I don't know. But mm. anecdotally, I, it And actually, it, does, it may not change mood, but uh, it does, uh, there is evidence that it does significantly improve quality of life, which I think is, yeah. a, is a very underrated metric. I feel like that's the point of of medicine to improve people's quality of life. So CPAP does do that. Just the point of medicine is to, implant, is to implant the most expensive cardiac device you can in a patient. I don't know where you went. <laughs> 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 um, okay, so then that you, you know, you've got positive airway pressure and there's so many, this is another land of acronyms. Respiratory in general is a land of acronyms and I think people get a bit confused. I get a bit confused with them. So Scott, do you want to tell us about the different types of PAP, positive airway pressure? Yeah, so the, the one we've been talking about the most is CPAP or continuous PAP, positive airway pressure. And that just continues, as we talked about, delivers a continuous same pressure into your airways to try and hold those airways open. And that's the simplest and most commonly used and studied. Yep, so that's CPAP. And that's basically going to be your go-to for most people. Um, then you've got bi-level PAP, so bi-level positive airway pressure. And you might have heard of this from COPD. This is what you use in people who have COPD and they're CO2 is rising, pH is getting lower. And what it does is it, um, it provides different inspiratory and expiratory airway pressure, which you might think makes sense. You know, when you're breathing out, you don't really want this really high pressure, but actually you do in OSA to keep everything open. But maybe you want a higher pressure when you're breathing in. Now, in, in OSA, there's no proven advantage over CPAP. It's more expensive, more complicated, and doesn't have any proven advantage. So it's not your go-to. Now we're going to get into some of the some of the weirder stuff here. Um, Auto-titrating PAP or APAP, you won't see very commonly uh, in the hospital, but at home, a lot of machines look like this. 
what it does is it tries to increase the amount of pressure it's giving in response to changes in airflow slash vibrations. Why? Well, the airflow and vibrations are meant to be signs that you're still snoring. You're still obstructing your airway. So the machine will try and increase the pressure to overcome that when it needs to. Unfortunately, it hasn't really demonstrated that much of a benefit over CPAP, but it's thought to be beneficial. Um, so APAP, or auto-titrating pressure, you might see that. And follows that principle of if you can find something more expensive, you should probably use that one instead. The, the classic cardiology <laughs> principle. Yeah. It's the beauty of medicine. This is the beauty. <laughs> beauty within medicine. Shout out to beauty within medicine, by the way. Uh, <laughs> this be right up there, Ali. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, and lastly, there's this thing called ASV, or adaptive servo ventilation. Basically, in this one, you'll see it often used for people with central sleep apnea. So what we talked about, those people who have strokes or neurological dysfunction and they sometimes forget to breathe. What it'll do is it'll always give them a bit of CPAP. And then if they forget to breathe a little bit, it'll start doing some BiPAP stuff. And then it'll flip back to CPAP if, it's, um, if you know, that's not an issue, if there's no problems with um, inspiration and expiration. So those are the different modes. Um, you've got CPAP, same pressure the whole time. BiPAP or BPAP, which is different inspiratory and expiratory pressures. APAP, which is auto-titrating, which tries to increase the pressure when you're still snoring despite your CPAP. And lastly, ASV or adaptive servo ventilation, which changes the pressure uh, for people who have central sleep apnea. So when they stop breathing themselves, it can take over. And so for anyone who's uh, who's preclinical or in this COVID era, era, anyone who's clinical and just hasn't yet been allowed to, um, experience clinical CPAP is is really the one to remember here. So people who have obstructive sleep apnea, CPAP is usually what they're on. And something that I find really funny is that you'll see uh, patients get admitted and it's written on their past medical history, you know, one, obesity, two, type 2 diabetes, three, OSA, and they always write underneath on CPAP. Um, but but uh, a lot of patients who are on CPAP are not actually taking CPAP. They're just not using it. Yeah. And well, have this, got any numbers for us about this? Yeah. No, no. Don't know why you would have thought that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Adherence <laughs> is a big issue. 20 to 40% of patients don't use their CPAP. And even more than that, they don't use it at all. And even more than that, don't use it every night. Um, and, you know, it's not hard to understand why. It's a really loud, uncomfortable machine that blows air down your throat all night. Like, it's, it's pretty not cash money, really. When you think yeah. about it. Like you think it's hard wearing a mask, like a coronavirus level surgical <laughs> yeah. mask kind of thing. But this is something that is like hard plastic that is intended to be so tight on your face that you're, you're left with big marks where it is. It's physically really uncomfortable. You look like something out of a horror movie when you're wearing one. Um, yeah. it's, it's really, it's really challenging <laughs> to wear it. And, yeah. and it can be embarrassing for people to be in bed with their partner wearing a mask like that. Um, and, exactly and as it. you said, Rahul, it's really noisy. So I think all of us have probably tried to take someone's history while they've had CPAP on and realised that it's just not something <laughs> you can do. Yeah. So you've got to think about what can you do to help this person who's not adhering if you suspect that someone's not adhering or they tell you they're not adhering. And so mm. your options are it might be the mask is uncomfortable. So you, there are a bunch of different types of masks. Some are just nostrils. Some are over the whole thing. Some have sweet decals on them of eagles and so some people are more into that and so you know you refit the mask you change the mask you could see if they can that'll help them uh, you can see if you can counsel their partner and talk to them about it um, 
and make them understand the nature of the condition. You know, that obviously you might have a limited healthfulness there. And lastly, you can add humidification to the machine. Most of them have humidification, but that, that can sometimes be a factor that's drying out their airways. They wake up feeling really stuffy or they get a lot of cough overnight. Um, so there's a few things you can do there. But ultimately, it is yes. unfortunately a little bit uncomfortable. I might just add just a, just a really, really important general principle for medicine. When you want a patient to be adherent to their therapy, I think that what a lot of people do is they just kind of diss the patient, like, ah, oh, they're, just, they're just not following what we've told them to do. And then, of course, their sleep apnea is not getting better. Of course, their tachycardia is not improving. Um, but a lot of the time, the patient actually has never been told why they should be following these uh, these treatment regimes. So tell them that you, they should have their mask on for at least six hours a night and therefore they will get improved quality of life. They will experience a reduction in, in those other uh, factors that we talked about before. So I think it's really important that the patient understands why you're treating them with particular things and, and also their partners as well, like you said. Yep, spot on, spot on. So then, you know, let's say you get some, you know, we, there are some alternative therapies available um, and these have pretty niche indications because as I said, the main thing is PAP, positive airway pressure. But what are the alternatives available, Scott, for people who either don't need it or decline it? Yeah, I mean, obviously CPAP's the best, but some other options are, particularly on people with a, um, abnormal anatomy, you can get these little devices that kind of hold forward the mandible or hold the tongue more anteriorly to try and open that lumen and get more air in and out without the airway collapsing. And sometimes in particular patients, you might even, um, uh, sometimes you might have uh, upper airway sur surgery as an option. But I think, I don't know if that's a very evidence-based area. I think it's a bit case by case. That's it. It's probably mostly for people who have severe symptoms despite CPAP, unless they have an obvious facial abnormality or, you know, uh, pharyngeal abnormality that can be fixed with surgery, in which case that's, you know, that's your first go-to. So, Beck, what about driving? I mean, we've talked about how people can have accidents and, you know, should you, and I imagine, you know, I sort of think of a truck driver whenever I think of OSA. So what, what do you do in that situation? <laughs> Yeah, so, so this depends on, um, on what country uh, you live in. So obviously we have a lot of international listeners with us today. Hello <laughs> everyone. Shout out um, to our Lithuanian so, family. Uh, so, um, so in Australia, Ostroids is the guideline that, that is uh, useful for this. And I don't think there's any particular laws surrounding just a usual, a normal licence, but certainly those with a commercial licence are required to have an annual review by a sleep specialist to make sure that their adequate treatment is maintained. And for drivers who are treated with CPAP, there's actually this objective way to measure how much they're adhering to the use of their machines. And that's with a, a little sort of usage, measure, usage meter that um, tells clinicians how much they're actually being used. I suppose I it's a bit like a glucometer in diabetes. So you can actually review how much, what the, what the activity has been like on the machine. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think even, even laws aside, you've got a responsibility as a doctor to make sure that um, not only you're looking after the patient and advocating for the patient, but also making sure that they are actually safe to drive, whether they've got a commercial licence or not. So just making sure you treat them as well as you can. And if you feel that they're dangerous on the road, telling them that. For sure. Okay, so let's come back to the case here. So after a titration study and fitting a mask, fitting of a mask that reminds Frank of his days hawking the skies with an oxygen tank, he returns to you. He states he's, feel, he's lost weight. He no longer falls asleep during the day and feels better than ever. He does comment that you seem to have gotten a new tattoo of a West African swallow below your left eyelid. 
That's pretty cool. Um, Not as you cool as an eye, eyeball tat, but, you know. Yeah, yeah, it'd be <laughs> sweet, if, sweet if it was an eagle, but that's definitely a West African <laughs> swallow. You can tell by the belly colours and the wingspan. Um, you silently mourn your poor ornitho- ornithological research before checking his blood pressure again. 120 on 80. Ding, ding, ding. Frank tells you his wife still doesn't find his personality attractive, but you find yourself becoming more and more strangely compelled by Frank's suave, carefree manner. Okay, let's last bit of the, the talk before we let you go. Um, let's talk about the complications of obstructive sleep apnea. Scott, do you want to kick us off? Yes, I think we've already talked about this a bit, but the first one is motor vehicle accidents, and they're two to three times more common. Um, next, we talked about... That's different... huge, two to three times more common. Yeah, a lot of crashes. The, the next one is the umbrella of kind of neuropsychiatric dysfunction. So we talked about um, uh, sleepiness with poor attention and memory and cognitive deficits. And some, it's, sometimes it's also associated with depression or sexual dysfunction even. Um, the next one is cardiovascular disease. And we've talked obviously about hypertension and um, uh, increased risk of AF. Uh, and it's also, so, I th- maybe Raul, you can... Tell me the finer details on this, but I think associated with um, coronary artery disease, heart failure, and stroke. Is that right, or are they it's yeah, bed partners? So, bedfellows. Yeah, some so, some of these are bedfellows. <laughs> um, some of these are obviously directly related. Hypertension, uh, atrial fibrillation. There's a lot of good work out of Australia, out of Adelaide, on atrial fibrillation and obstructive sleep apnea. So treating of obstructive sleep apnea with CPAP will definitely decrease the amount of atrial fibrillation you have, your AF burden. But some of the other stuff, it's a bit more unclear, like um, stroke and um, coronary artery disease. Um, and then there's pulmonary hypertension, which sort of falls under the category a little bit of cardiovascular disease, so high blood pressure in the lungs. And this is falls, that's, some of you might remember our um, pulmonary hypertension podcast, but there's a group three of pulmonary hypertension where the high blood pressure in the lungs is caused by lung disease, and that's where this fits in. And essentially they get... You know, vascular changes there because of the high pressures in their lungs um, and also sometimes because of the low oxygen saturations. And lastly, I think, Beck, you can tell us a bit about the metabolic side of uh, obstructive sleep apnea. Yeah, so a lot of this is just mediated by hypoxemia. There's an increase in insulin resistance. It can actually be uh, associated with more diabetic complications. It's prothrombotic. There's increased inflammation, increased, uh, increased lipids and increased arterial stiffness. So to summarise, these main complications fit into the uh, categories of motor vehicle accidents, neuropsychiatric dysfunction, cardiovascular disease, pulmonary hypertension and factors associated with the metabolic syndrome. Right. Okay, cool. Well, uh, let's just uh, kick things off or finish things off with the summary of the whole podcast. So who predominantly gets obstructive sleep apnea, Scott? So overweight people and males. Yeah, males, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Another one for us. Um, yeah. And what are the clinical features, Beck? Uh, so symptoms, snoring, sleepiness, polyuria, and the company it keeps, to use the phrase that we keep repeating, atrial fibrillation, <laughs> heart failure, diabetes, and depression. Yep. It's, uh, it's common and it's underdiagnosed, so do think about it in all your overweight patients and particularly in people who come in saying they're feeling tired, obviously. And lastly, the cornerstone of therapy for this is far and away, it's actually kind of nice, it's easy, unlike a lot of other conditions where you have to think about 10 different drugs, 
The answer is pretty much always positive airway pressure, CPAP. And lifestyle and that, changes. Oh, yeah, sorry, lifestyle. <laughs> but more, more about the expensive device, more on the expensive um, <laughs> It doesn't improve everything, CPAP, but so it doesn't improve your mortality or your cardiovascular events, but it will probably make your patients feel a lot better. Uh, that's it. Let's... Thanks, Rahul. Yeah. That was great. <laughs> Hopefully, that actually seemed to work fine over over Zoom. I mean, I missed out on my daily trip to take out my bins, but or I had yeah. to postpone it a bit. But yeah. yeah, well, we'll find out what the people think. I mean, um, yeah, this they could they could hate it, and also we we don't know what the actual track sounds like. This could be just garbled mess, which would be a step up from our usual podcast. So there we are. Okay, <laughs> bye. Thanks everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks. <laughs>